0: Well, hello again. If you like to follow along with where we're going to be at, we're going to be hitting the book of Esther this morning and kind of walking through the entire book. And so I would encourage you to pull out your phone, pull out your Bible, whatever you like to use to follow along, just dive into there. And as you turn there, I want to go and say, like, I hope... This series that we've been in, which if you're a guest and you're not familiar with the series we're in, we're in a series called The Story, looking at how the entire Bible is one chronological story that all leads up to Jesus. We've been following through right now, going through the Old Testament piece by piece. And in my heart and hope in this is that you've kind of seen that there is this God, this central character, who has this intention, this mission in mind to fix the world. That he made the world one way to be good, it's kind of fallen apart, and he's on pursuit, he's in mission to, to fix things, and here's the beautiful thing, that he invites his people to be part of it. That part of his plan on how he's going to fix this world is by taking people, ordinary people like you and I, who are going to join in with the work that God is doing because they trust him. But if you're like me, maybe there's some insecurities in that. Right, Like maybe you look at this world and you see all that is broken and wrong in this world, all that is evil, all that is just painful even to, to think about sometimes, and then you look at yourself and you think, there's no way I can make a difference in this area. I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I, I'm not, I don't have enough looks or resources or whatever thing that you bring up and you say, I can't because of this. Has it ever been you? Have you ever had that insecurity pop up? I'll be honest, I'm a pastor and I still have that when I feel like God is saying, Mason, I want you to go do this. And I'm like, one of the first things that comes to my mind is thinking, God, I can't because of these reasons right here. I'm the wrong guy for this. I'm a pastor and I still have those thoughts. So I'm betting you probably do as well. So what would it take for us to be used by God to be difference makers when we have these insecurities? What would it take for us to trust God to take that step forward and whatever God might be asking of us, whether that's to have that conversation that you've been avoiding, whether that's to give when you've never been giving, whether that's to go and take a risk for something, and you're like, if I do this, there's all these possibilities out there of things that can go wrong, but I know God wants me to do it, and you're wrestling with that. Like, What would it take for us to take that step forward of courage and faith? That's actually a part of what the book of Esther is all about. And that's why we're going to be going through the book of Esther today and our journey to see how this all fitting together. And I'll go ahead and be honest, Esther in my opinion, my honest opinion, is the most culturally relevant book in the Old Testament to today's situations. It's all over the place. You read and you're like, oh my gosh, I see this in today's world, I see this, in... and we're going to get that in a minute. So let me go ahead and set the scene for you. So this is about 100 years after the Israelites have been sent off into exile into Babylon. Remember, they disobeyed God. They wouldn't listen and love God. They wouldn't keep his commandments and his covenant. And so they faced the punishment of exile. And so they were dragged away from their homes in chains, where the last thing they were seeing is like their temple and everything on fire, Right? And so this is about 100 years later, and the Israelites at this time have taken on a new name. They're now called the Jews. And they live as these refugees, even 100 years later, they live as these refugees under the Persian Empire. And they're not the most well-liked people, but they're still trying to do their best. They're still trying to make a living. They're still trying to do a better job for their kids after them and things like that, even in this setting. And then we find in this story, it begins with us being introduced not to a Jewish character, but actually being introduced to the king. And this king in this story is a real doofus. I mean, he's a drunk. Every time he appears in the story, you you want to picture him kind of with like a wine glass, maybe a a fat pot belly, and he's just like slurring his words. Like he is a drunk in this story. He's, He's a terrible human being. And he has this habit where he throws these parties. And it's not like any party you might throw, which lasts for like a few hours. His parties last for weeks of nonstop celebration. And he loves to do this, where it's all wine and drinking and partying and things like that. And he has this habit where he's married a beautiful woman. And he has this habit where he likes to bring out his woman in front of everyone else. And it's not really like, hey, it's a fashion show. The language here is kind of suggesting that he does something horrible to her. That he's showcasing her beauty. He's showing that she's nothing more than an object for his pleasure. And we can only imagine the horrors and the shame and the disgust that he probably puts his wife through in these situations. And he does this over and over again. Until one day in the story that we're told that the queen says enough is enough. And she tells him in chapter 1, Verse 12, it says, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So I want you to get into the mind of this king and probably what he's thinking, right? He's probably thinking, I run this massive empire. I have all this responsibility. I have all these things I need to take care of. Everywhere I go, I am respected by everybody, but I come home and I'm not respected by my wife. That's what he's thinking. And it outrages him to the point where he removes his wife as a queen, which we, in that day language, means more than he just divorces her. It probably means he kills her. He just is like, I'm gonna eliminate this problem. And then he writes a new law and sends it out all across the land because he's been embarrassed. He writes this law and sends it out and it says a man should own his wife like property. All because he felt disrespected. He is a egotistical tyrant, right? But here's the thing. These conversations still take place all the time. I can't tell you how many times I hear the same thing from couples of, you know what? She just doesn't respect me. You know what? He just doesn't love me. These things still happen today. We still live in a world of brokenness in marriages and we still do the exact same things as this king and queen where they're like, let's just tear each other apart. And if that's you, and let me tell you, there's a good chance it is. Because maybe you're having those exact same conversations behind closed door. Maybe you're sitting there and been thinking this for a while. Man, he just does not love me. Or man, she just will not respect me. If that is you, please reach out for help before you end up destroying something beautiful that God might have in mind. Because this situation, this guy, he just throws this woman away. He's been embarrassed, he's been insulted, because she's been embarrassed and been insulted. And so it just spirals out of control. But some time passes on later after this, and he gets lonely. He wants another warm body in his bed. And so his attendants come up with this very sick idea. It's in chapter 2, verse 2, where it says, The king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. So their idea, to break it down for you, is, hey, let's have soldiers go from town to town finding all of the beautiful teenage virgins, and then let's round them up. Let's bring them back to the castle. Let's have them go undergo all these beauty treatments to make them even more attractive. And then we'll line them up before the king so he can pick which one he wants to spend the night with. It's gross. They call it a beauty contest, but let's not... Uh, beat around the bush. This is nothing more than sex trafficking going on here. And here's the the disgusting thing. This is still going on today. It's nothing more than what modern-day pornography looks like, where men and women are abused, they're used, they're mistreated, and then they're tossed aside so that someone can go on to the next click of the video. It's the exact same thing we're seeing in today's world, where here are these teenage girls who are dragged from their homes, they have to have their first sexual experience with an abusive older man, and then they're tossed aside in a harem, never to be seen or heard from again, until he decides, you know what, I want to go back and bring out that person again. It's a terrible, terrible situation. But in this situation, we're introduced to a couple of Jews who pop up in the story at this point. The first one is a man named Mordecai, and, and he's got this niece named Esther. And Esther is one of those who is rounded up by the soldiers, taken to the capital. She has to go through the same beauty contest. She's presented before the king, and he selects her for a night of sexual abuse with her. But we're told that there's a different outcome for her than there is for anyone else. It's in chapter 2 verse 17 where it says the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now we would read that and almost feel sorry for Esther. This is not a reward. This is not a privilege. She is basically being made into a trophy wife to a man who is abusive and very likely to kill her if she ever disrespects him. This is not a point where we're like, yay, go Esther, you won the beauty contest. I mean, I'll be honest, when I was in Sunday school as a little kid, that's how the message was told to us. You get older and you read it and you're like, oh my gosh, this is a terrible, terrible situation that she's in. Right? But we still get the sense in this story that maybe God is doing something. Now here's the unique thing about this story of Esther. God is not mentioned at all, but we see his handiwork. And we're seeing this moment where here's a society that doesn't like the Jews. And here's a society that's full of sexism. Here's a society that's full of domestic violence. Here's a society that's full of broken marriages. Here's a society that's full of sex trafficking. And in this context, God is kind of bringing to the surface some of his people who are in the middle of this. There's Mordecai who becomes a little bit famous because he stops an assassination plot of the king and he's hailed, he's celebrated, he now has a relationship with the king. And then there's Esther who's kind of brought up in this situation. She's now the most powerful woman in the land even though she's kind of a prisoner herself. But you see kind of like God is moving chess pieces on the board. That he's setting up something that's coming. He's preparing for something that's down the road. We just don't know it yet. But the story kind of tells us shortly after because we're introduced to this guy named Haman. And Haman rises up and he's celebrated by the king. He's best buds with the king. But we're told that Haman, he's an evil man. He doesn't get along with Mordecai. And he's like, I wanted to not just punish Mordecai and kill Mordecai because he's my enemy. He goes one step further. Here's what he says in chapter three, verse six, where it says, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai. Throughout the whole kingdom of, I don't know how to pronounce that to be honest. But throughout the whole kingdom. So this is like the original Hitler. Where here's a guy, he's like, I don't want to just kill this one Jew. I want to eliminate the entire population. I want to destroy this entire race. And so Haman comes up with this plan, this plot on how he's going to do this. He has a party once again with the king. And the king is drunk off his mind. And he's like, hey, King, I've got an idea. Why don't we just kill all the Jews? And the king, believe it or not, agrees with this. And why wouldn't he? I mean, Haman's his trust, his buddy. He, he trusts what Haman has to say. They're drunk off their minds. And so they write this law into effect. And so we're told in chapter 3, verse 13, that letters were sent out by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to k- destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. Meaning no one's going to be left safe. Everyone's got a target now on their back. And it's all going to happen on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adair, and and they're told to plunder their goods. And you see, a copy of this document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. So basically, think of it like this. One day, a new law appears on your doorstep, and it says, hey... You've got a certain people group in your neighborhood and it's up to you. It's your responsibility on this day to go and kill them and take anything you want from their home. That's the situation that's going on here. And here's what happens after this decree sent out and everyone has this responsibility. It says the couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king and the decree was issued in Susa, the capital. And here's how the king and Haman are responding to this. It says the king and Haman sat down to drink. They sit down to celebrate. Like, we did a good thing today, but the city of Susa was thrown into chaos. So to recap the horrors we're seeing so far, we're seeing that there's sexism here. We're seeing domestic violence. We're seeing racism. We're seeing hate groups. We're seeing sex trafficking. We're seeing broken homes, and now we're seeing how powerful men can make decisions that come to the suffering of innocence, and the innocent can't do anything about it. It's a world very much like our own still today. It's important when we read the Bible that we understand that the Bible is not just a spiritual matter toolbox. The Bible is very clear on pointing out the horrors of today because it's asking us to, to see them, not to turn a blind eye to them, but to see that we live in a broken world that needs to be fixed. And then it calls us to have faith that in the midst of all this, there is a God at work, a God of love and mercy, who wants to bring a solution to this problem. And that's challenging. And in this moment, we're seeing this terrible situation, this terrible culture, this terrible reality, and it leaves us wondering, God, what are you going to do about this? People's lives are on the line. There is evil on the streets. They're everywhere. What are we going to do about it? God, what are you going to do about this? But remember how earlier God has been kind of setting up some chess pieces on the board. He's been raising up Mordecai and Esther in this moment. And so Mordecai, he is just broken hearted by this. And so he goes to Esther, the queen, and he begs her, please talk some sense into your husband. And Esther points out how dangerous this is. Her predecessor was killed. Not just divorced, probably killed, Because she said no to him. Because she opposed his wishes. And now Mordecai is asking of his niece to do the exact same thing. To take that risk. And this is a very arrogant man. Let me tell you, this is a man, this king, he's the kind of man who kills people who are not invited into his presence. And so Esther's honest about that. She's like, if I go to him and he hasn't invited me to be in his company I'll die. It doesn't matter if I'm his trophy wife. I'll die. And so this is a serious matter. First off, it's also a showing of how arrogant this king is. I mean, how arrogant can you get to be like, I'm going to kill anyone who doesn't get an invite to be in my party, right? But that's who this guy is, and that's the threat that's on the table, right? And so Esther's like, I can't do this. This is too terrifying. I can't risk my life in this. But here's how Mordecai responds, and it's a powerful response he gives her. It's in chapter 4. He tells her in verse 13. He says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And here's the real kicker, this real powerful line he says next. He says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, in this story, God has not been mentioned at all. But what we're seeing from Mordecai is he has absolute faith that God intends to bring rescue. He has absolute trust that God loves his people and that God wants to do something about this situation. So he's like, I know God is going to win the day. That in the end, we're all going to be praising God because of the victory he brought about. But he's pointing out to Esther, and he's like, maybe God has put you in this position to partner with him. Because maybe God has put her in this situation. That oftentimes is how God works, where God puts us in different positions in our lives. Sometimes positions we don't want to be in, but he puts us in those positions so that we can make a difference for him. All of us have those moments. All of us have those experiences where God says, hey, I know you're in this situation, but will you listen to me? Will you obey me in this moment? And Here's Esther's moment. And it involves big risks. It involves a threat to her life. She has every right to be hesitant about this. But when Mordecai lets her know all this, that he fully believes that God is going to rescue them and that how God is inviting her to be part of the rescue, to be part of the solution rather than be part of the problem. Here's her response. Chapter 4, verse 16, where she tells him, go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she had this fear and hesitation in the beginning. But now she's looking at it you and she's like, you know what? It is worth following God and to what he's leading, even if it's a risk to my life. And so she goes into it. See, my friends, that's real courage. That's real bravery. Courage, courage, my friends, happens in the context of fear and hesitation, not in its absence. To walk by faith means that sometimes you're having to take steps forward and things that feel uncomfortable, things that move you outside of your comfort zone, things that you're like, this is going to challenge who I am. This is going to put a target on me. This is going to put a risk on everything I've done in the past. That's where real courage and faith comes in. That's what it means to walk by faith. And here's Esther in this moment where she's choosing faith and courage. And because of this, she goes before the king and he shows mercy to her. And she's able to present her case. She's able to reveal to the king, hey, I'm a Jew. And the law you just put into effect has a target on me as well. Has a target on my people, and she's able to convince the king to change the law. And in this, the plot goes on, and Haman's revealed to be a villain, and he's dealt with. And the Jews in this story end up in a better position because Esther had the courage to say yes to what God was moving her towards. She had the courage to overcome her insecurities, to overcome all the doubt, to overcome all the obstacles in front of her, and be able to say, I trust. Jesus, I trust this God who is leading me forward. And this story is presented to us to kind of give us motivation. It's not an assurance saying that every time you take a step forward on God, it's going to work the way you want it to work, but it will always work the way that God wants it to work. And this is the motivation, to be people who will say yes to God to be people who will look at all of the reality around us all the evil and not turn a blind eye to it but to ask ourselves how can we be part of the solution rather than be part of the problem how can we be difference makers and when esther did that it changed the way the things went And God used, in this moment, if you think about it, God used a woman who was brought up in a situation of abuse and chaos and used her to be willing to go through suffering to bring about rescue and blessing to others. And you might be looking at that and you're like, that doesn't make any sense. Why would God allow someone to go through this situation? Why would God allow someone to face suffering and abuse just for the rescue of others? That doesn't make sense, but think about it, my friends. That's what Jesus did. Jesus was innocent and he was abused. He was mistreated. He was tortured. He took a cross for our sins. He died all so that we could have the rescue that God has promised. Also, that our lives can be completely changed. This should show us the links which God is willing to go to to face evil and suffering, that maybe he allows people to face suffering so that through it, others can experience rescue. Because maybe the situation you're going through, maybe there's hope in that, That the situation you're going through that's struggling you, that, that's bringing pain into your life, maybe God is using that to give you a platform, to give you an opportunity to bring rescue to someone else to bring healing to someone else. And you see, what this story of Esther is really trying to show us, when we boil it down, the message that God is trying to teach us in this is that God's rescue arises when his people take responsibility for their position. God's rescue arises when his people take responsibility for their position. Here was Esther who was in a position where she could bring about change. And she took responsibility as one of God's people, to step into that, to tell her truth. Now, it's important to know that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to bring his rescue into the world. But we look at a God who wants to bring his rescue into the world and then invites us to partner with him. There's an invitation here. And that changes everything. Because when we open up the Bible and we see this, we start to see passages like what Allison read earlier. Passages that are all over the Old Testament. The prophets are talking about this God who is sitting on the edge of his throne just begging and saying, will someone take a chance on me so I can pour out my blessings upon the world? That's how this God works. He's not saying, hey, you've been saved. Now sit around, twiddle your thumbs, wait until you get to heaven. He's saying you've been saved for a purpose so that you can see the responsibility of your position to bring goodness into this world. To be a Christian is not to say, hey, I'm just waiting for the day when I get to go to heaven and I'm going to live my life however I want. That's not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is an invitation to partner with God, to be part of the solution to the evil in this world. As you partner with bringing in the hope of Jesus in this world, as you share it, as you tell of it, as you embody it, this is what it means to be a Christian. And there's a lot of risk in that. There's a lot of fear in that. Because sometimes to take that step forward means that you're willing to accept pain. You're willing to accept suffering. You're willing to accept the uncertainty of, will God come and work things out the way you want it to work out? Look at the book of Daniel with the friends of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? where they had faith that God would save them, but even though they're like, hey, you know what? We totally believe that God can save us, but even if he doesn't, hey, we're still going to go this way that God wants us to do. We're still going to honor him with our lives. We're still going to love him. We're still going to worship him, even if he doesn't rescue us in this moment. Now, God did rescue them, but it might not always happen the way we want it to happen, but when God calls us to take a step forward and whatever he has for us, it's going to work the way that God wants it to work out. See, this is the encouragement here. This is the motivation here to be people of trust. See, that's the kind of people that God uses to, to bring a difference in this world. It's not the more talented, the more educated, the more wealthy. The kind of people that God uses are ordinary people who are willing to say, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. All around the world right now, we're seeing our brothers and sisters embody that. Men and women will travel for hours around the world today to be part of a church body. To be able to worship God. Many of them don't have a Bible and so they listen attentively when the Bible is open. They hunger for it and they're the people who are right now making a difference all around the world. And then you have us. And we're not always the best at that. We're like a sleeping giant in a lot of ways where we have all this freedom to be able to worship, but we look for any excuse not to. We look for any excuse to throw away our responsibilities if it, the weather's nice or if it's bad. If we have a ball game, if we have anything else on the counter that we can find that says, give me an excuse not to be a part of the family of God, to worship God. We do this even with our Bibles where all of us have access to Bibles all around us, but we don't open it. We'll spend four hours binge-watching Netflix at night, but we won't take 20 minutes just to open up God's Word to see what the God of the universe has to say to us. We don't have that in us. We don't pray. We don't give. We're the richest people in the world, but we don't give. We don't serve. We look for any opportunity to bail out of the responsibility of what it means to follow Christ. And the world around us is suffering. for it, Where we've got domestic violence in our neighborhoods. We've got kids who sleep on the floor in our neighborhoods. We've got broken marriages. We've got women who are exploited for sex. Everything we see in the book of Esther, we see it in our world today. And it's time, my friends, the gospel urges us to be people who accept the responsibility of what it means to follow Christ, that we're going to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And that means a bit of changes in who we are. That means stop watching your pornography. That means be people of love rather than people of gossip. I mean, it's a shameful act when as Christians we, we talk shamefully, we gossip about one another online or behind our backs. Are we not ashamed by that? Are you? Why do you do it? Why do we do it? We need to make changes in who we are. We need to be people who will see that following Jesus more than just, I attended a church Sunday and I went on my way and I did my own thing. It's about seeing that there's a responsibility in here. That if we want to see those around us come to love God and love people, we've got to see that there's a responsibility in that in us as well. There's a responsibility in us to be people who are difference makers, change makers around us. This is what God has made us to be. So let me give you a word of encouragement. Because maybe for some of you, you have something on your heart that you feel like God has been leading you towards. Or something where you feel like God is saying, hey, I want you to do this. And you've been throwing up all the blockers. You've been looking for every excuse imaginable to say no to God. Because there's fear in that. Your fear of, you know what, if I take this, I might be risking my relationship with others. I might be risking my job. I might be risking, you know, my security. I, I might be risking my reputation with others. The way they're going to look at me, they're going to say things about me behind my back. And so there's a lot of fear sometimes. And what God calls us to, believe me, I know. I've been there. I know what that's like. I know how that insecurity feels. But I want you to look at Esther, who faced all those exact same insecurities, all those excuses, except her threats, obstacles were bigger. Hers were, I could die. But she stopped. And when it was made clear to her, she was able to see, you know what? God is worth it. My friends, is Jesus not worth any risk? So maybe God has laid something on your heart. And I want to encourage you, take that leap of faith, Your life might never be the same, but if God is calling you something, take that leap of faith. Pray. Embody this message of being a person who's taken the responsibility of your position. And let me say something as well to those of you who feel like you've grown up in an Esther world. You don't have to imagine what it's like because you lived it, maybe every day of your life. And I recognize how painful that is. I recognize how lonely that is. I recognize how that means sometimes you even show up to church and you got a smile on your face, but inside you're screaming. And let me say something in that moment. That the God of the universe loves you. He did not do that thing to you. that thing in your past that, that you know of. He did not do that to you. But he hurts with you. And he wants to walk that road of recovery with you. And he wants to use you to do a mighty thing. That thing that you point back to and you're like, I can't because of this in my past. Might very well be the platform that you get to stand upon to say, look what God has done. When you say yes to him. Because you are not trash. You're not useless. You're not damaged goods. You are loved by Jesus. And that changes everything. And this Jesus doesn't just want you to be part of his family, to be in relationship with you, but he wants to use you to do mighty things in this world, to make a difference in your marriage, to make a difference in the lives of your kids, to make a difference in your community with your coworkers because that's the purpose he's made you for that that is the god we worship and so i'm sorry that thing happened to you in your past but i want you to know god is bigger than that and he's going to move us forward and he's brought you into a place where i hope you can look around and say this is a family who's Walking through this journey with me. Because here all the time, what do we say here? That we're a family of imperfect people falling a perfect God. That no one here is perfect. No one here is without their scars and wounds. So you're in good company. And every single one of us believes, I hope, that God wants to do something beautiful in your life. And so we want to partner with you in that. And I want you to know every single week there are men and women in the back of the room who stand back there if you need to talk to someone. But even if you never go back there and talk to someone about what it means to follow Jesus or just to say, hey, I'm going through this struggle in my life, I need someone to pray for me. Or hey, I believe that God has this in store for me and I have had all this fear and saying no to him and I need to talk to someone about getting the courage for this. That's why they're back there. But even if you never go back there, I want you to know They're back there to embody this message that you are loved by a creator who made you, who, yes, you might be in a broken world, but he still wants to use you to make a difference like he did with Esther. So even if you never go back there, know that you are loved and let that be the embodiment. Let that be the symbol. But if you do need to talk to someone here in a minute, we're going to sing, we're going to worship this God who loves us, who changes everything. And in that moment, if you need to talk to someone, There'll be people in the back of the room. I'll be over there if you need to talk to me as well. Or maybe, maybe the easier thing, and you're like, I don't want to get up. I don't want to be seen by anyone. Maybe the easier thing, take those connection cards, flip it over, mark saying, I need to talk to someone about Jesus. Put it in the offering buckets and we'll be in contact with you to have a conversation to help you through what you're going through, to have a conversation that might very well change your life as we get to remind you of how loved you are by Jesus. But as people, let's be the kind of people who will take the responsibility of the position we're in To not turn a blind eye to the brokenness around us, but to be people who will see that brokenness and then ask God, God, how can I be a solution here? I believe that would change your marriage. I believe that would change your friendships. I believe that would change your place of work. I mean, think about it as teachers. You're around students who live some very broken homes. Think about it in that. Be the solution. Be the light in that moment as you take that responsibility. We all have this in us. Because the Holy Spirit is in us. Why don't you pray with me? Father, I would ask that you would search us. That you would break us in the areas where we are resisting you. And that you would lead us. And Father, it is terrifying to be able to say, here I am, send me. Because we don't know oftentimes what you're going to send us into. Or sometimes we do know. Sometimes we know exactly what you want us to do. And we've been we've been holding out. We've been saying no. We've been pulling out all the stops and all the excuses we can think of. Father, I pray if there are those in this room that they would be encouraged this morning to take a leap of faith in you. To take the chance that you might be presenting to them to trust you and that you would reward them with seeing how you bring rescue to the lives of others. And Father, I understand that sometimes to say yes to you means that we're also saying yes to, to be put in some painful situations. That sometimes we end up in the same position of Jesus where we have to find ourselves in difficult situations where we might be innocent and yet we're suffering through them. But give us the faith and the courage in that moment to know that because we go through these moments, because we chose to say yes to you, even when these things came about, that it is bringing about a blessing and rescue to others. And for our Father, for those who are hurting, for those who have grown up in an Esther Father, I ask, would you comfort us? Would you wrap your arms around us? Remind us that you are here, that you love us, that you haven't turned away from us, you haven't fled, you haven't got out of Dodge, you have remained with us. And not only that, but you're bringing us to a place of recovery. You're bringing us to a place where we can make a difference for you despite whatever has happened in our past, maybe even because of it. So, Father, I ask that you would move in this room right now. Bring out of us a worship, a worship to such a degree that says that we trust you, we have faith in you, and we want to be people.